In John chapter 4, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggin. Being a priest in ancient Israel was no job for a slouch. The book of Leviticus lays out the job description for the priests, among other things. But everything that you read about in this book, you may not realize this, but everything that you read about in the book of Exodus happened in just 30 days. Some of the books in the Bible span hundreds of years. Leviticus, just 30 days. There were no years of seminary for priests. God gave them the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of our Bible today, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He gave them the first five books, and Leviticus in particular describes the work of the priests. And, and you soon begin to realize the work that a priest had to figure out when you start to read in Leviticus. Priests had to know about burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. They had to know the proper way to butcher and dissect bulls and oxen and rams and lambs and goats and pigeons and doves. They had to know which parts to eat, which parts to wash, which parts to burn on the altar, which parts to burn outside of the camp. They had to know about the Sabbath, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, and the Year of Jubilee. They had to know about skin diseases, mildew, bodily fluids, and infections. They had to keep track of the laws governing sexuality, loans, crimes, justice, diet, clothing, tattoos, hair and beard trimming, weights and measures, child and adult discipline, marriage and divorce, physical handicaps, tithes and offerings. They had to keep track of the punishments for breaking any of the laws. And Aaron and his sons had to figure all this out, and much more, in just 30 days. How would you like to be a priest? Well, on the surface, that's the book of Leviticus. So since we aren't priests in ancient Israel, Leviticus is not for us, is it? So, why, I mean, shouldn't we just skip ahead to say, I, I don't know, the New Testament? Is there something in Leviticus for us? today. Of course there is. God would not have saved it for us if there wasn't. You might actually be surprised how packed this Old Testament book is with stuff that can change your life. You have to dig for it a little bit sometimes, but it's definitely there. On the surface, Leviticus is just a long description of forms and rituals for services, for worship. Below the surface, though, is what those forms and those rituals point to and what they symbolize and the meaning that they hold. The book of Leviticus is not just about ceremonies. Leviticus is about Jesus. Even though Jesus wouldn't be born for hundreds of years, Leviticus is a living acted out 
parable for how God, through Jesus, is dealing with the problem of evil in our world. That's what it is underneath. Not just Jesus' life and death here on earth, but also his continuing ministry in heaven. It's all in Leviticus. In fact, without Leviticus, parts of the Gospels and of Paul's letters in the New Testament, they don't even make sense. We have to have Leviticus to even understand what they're talking about. The New Testament draws heavily on the book of Leviticus as it illustrates how Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that Israel was waiting for in the Messiah. Remember when Jesus died, how the curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy place and this curtain ripped in half from the top to the bottom, something that was impossible for human hands to do. Some people say that that curtain was as much as four inches thick. It was heavy. And when Jesus died, the moment he died, that curtain ripped from top to bottom, exposing the most holy place, the sacred place that no one could look at without dying. And yet, nothing happened to the priest who was there. The sanctuary services had accomplished their work at that point. The symbols that we read about in Leviticus, the symbols had met reality. So if you ever wonder if Christians are required to continue keeping all of the ceremonies, the answer is plainly no. However, that idea created quite the disturbance among the new Christians. Some thought that they should continue keeping the ceremonial laws while other people said, no, they've been fulfilled in Jesus. It's done. And they had a big argument about it. Fortunately for us, though, Peter and Paul and the others laid the whole issue to rest at their council in Jerusalem back in A.D. 49. And that's why our church, which is still careful to, to follow the moral law and, and the health laws, we do not emphasize the ceremonial laws. Yeah, we might sometimes hold an agape feast or, or something like that just to help us better understand. And that's valuable. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. But we want to avoid making the symbols our focus more than focusing on the one who fulfilled the symbols. It's easy, easy to make forms and rituals the most important aspect of worship. You see churches everywhere that do that, where the forms and the rituals are what are most important. But ultimately, the point of worship is not the forms and the rituals. That's not the point of worship. Still, though, we can't get away from the fact that Leviticus spends an awful lot of time laying out a ritual-filled system of worship. And since the rituals were packed with symbolism pointing to the coming Messiah, everything had to be done perfectly, had to be done exactly according to the instructions God gave, because to change anything was to corrupt and invalidate the symbols. I often get questions from people concerning the ceremonies. And why were there so many and such complicated sacrifices and ceremonies and rituals that people had to, to go through? Well, since so much of Leviticus is dedicated to the detailed descriptions of the sacrifices, let's just take a brief look at the significance of the offerings. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but when we understand the symbolism underneath what we're reading about, it makes the reading a little more interesting. 
because we're looking below the surface. The details that were included in the sacrifices were anything but random and pointless. For instance, the grain offering that we read about. The grain offering symbolized how God works in sinful human beings. The grain offering was when grain, a live seed, was crushed and turned into flour. Crushed the life right out of it. If you threw that flour on the ground, it would not grow. It was dead. But it symbolized how God takes our sinful lives and crushes it. You remember the, the verse in the Bible, anything that falls on the stone will be crushed. It symbolized how God crushes the old life of sin and turns it into something entirely new and different. Something that he can make bread out of. <laughs> something he can make new and different. So when you surrender your life to Christ, we must expect that he is going to destroy our old life. He is going to crush the life of sin that is in us so that Christ can live in us and give us a brand new life. There's not room in us for both Christ and our old way of life. The grain offering was a metaphor for that reality. And once the grain was ground into flour, then they mixed oil with it. You know what oil symbolizes in the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit, exactly. The Holy Spirit is mixed into this new life. Do you see the symbolism? Another offering was the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a free will offering, a voluntary gift. People would bring burnt offerings to God in thanksgiving, in gratitude, maybe for the, for the birth of a child or some stroke of good fortune or uh, any other times when they were thankful. The, these kinds of offerings, Leviticus tells us, were especially pleasing to God. Particularly so because they came from a heart of gratitude. They weren't coming from guilt or something like that. They were coming from a heart of gratitude. Even today, we still give that kind of offering sometimes. Tithe, 10% of our income, is required by God. That's a different thing. But voluntary gifts that we bring to God are especially pleasing to God because they come from a grateful heart. We don't have to do this. If you've never given an offering in response to thankfulness or joy, you should try it sometime. It's extremely meaningful, not only to us, but apparently to God himself. Then there was the sin offering. The sin offering was a sacrifice to atone for known sin. When you committed a sin and you knew it, this was the sacrifice that you brought. In the sin offering, a lamb was brought to the temple and the, the sinner laid his hands on the head of the lamb and confessed the sin that he needed to make right. The lamb then was to die instead of the sinner because the wages of sin is death. And so a substitute, an innocent lamb would die as a substitute for that person. And the symbol, most people know the symbolism behind this one, symbolizing how Jesus, the Messiah, would one day die for the sins of humanity as our substitute. And by the way, I understand anyway, the phrase for lay the hands on actually means to lean with one's weight. Total dependence. 
on the substitute for our life. Interestingly, though, when someone confessed their sin and sacrificed a lamb, the process of forgiveness was not totally complete at that point. Insofar as it was possible, the person had to make right their mistake. Turn in your Bibles, if you have it with you, to Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Verse 4 and 5. Leviticus chapter 6, 4 and 5. It required restitution as part of forgiveness. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 4. When he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to him or the lost property he has found or whatever it was he swore falsely about, whatever he lied about, whatever it was he swore falsely about, he must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. He must return it plus 20%. Interesting, huh? To make atonement for what he had done. The point is clear. It is not enough to confess our sins. We must rectify things. When you wrong someone, you must make things right as you can and make life changes that will help you not commit that sin again. That's what true repentance is all about, and it was all built in to the sin Offering. So there's the description of a few of the, the sacrifices you'll read about when you get into the book of Leviticus. Now, if you were to ask someone that has any sort of familiarity at all with the sacrificial services, and you ask them, what was the, the high point? What was the climax of the sacrificial services? What would most people say? They would probably say the slaying of the lamb because it symbolizes the death of Jesus. And that sounds good. That was definitely a critical point of the service, but the death of the lamb was not the end of the service. The climax of the sacrifice came later when the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the altar by the high priest. The symbolism, and this is extremely important, the symbolism of the service continued after the death of the lamb. There was more to it than just the death of the Lamb, a point that many people miss, and with it miss out some incredible truths concerning the process of our salvation. Most people believe that Jesus dying on the cross, that was the end of the process of salvation. That was it. But while that event was critically important to the process of our salvation, the symbolism goes on after the death of the Lamb. There's more to come. The high point of the plan of salvation is not only what Jesus did back then. As incredible as it was, that's not all there was to it. The high point of the plan of salvation is also what Jesus is continuing to do right now on our behalf in heaven. Jesus, our high priest, the book of Hebrews makes very clear, Jesus, our high priest, is even now, is currently involved in the blood on the altar part of the sacrificial services. Symbolically speaking, of course. It's called mediation. Mediation. As our sins come up before God, 
We are protected from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death. We are protected from the penalty of sin by this symbolic, continual sprinkling of the blood on the altar. Jesus' blood in our behalf. And I know that many people are uncomfortable with the volume of blood that we see emphasized in the sanctuary services. And it's understandable. It was a mess. There was blood everywhere in the sanctuary services. But that was the entire point. Sin is serious business. And nothing can overcome its consequences except for the blood of God himself. Imagine what Adam, the first man to ever make one of these sacrifices, imagine how he must have felt when he saw the first innocent lamb die because of his sin. Adam had never seen death. His stomach must have wretched the first time that God showed him how to slit the throat of that innocent lamb. In the sacrificial system, God made it abundantly clear that without the shedding of innocent blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. Sin is serious business. God intended from the very beginning that the sacrificial system would remind his people of the awfulness of sin. Instead, unfortunately, over time, the sacrificial system became distorted. It turned really into a system of <laughs> payment for the privilege of sinning. Ah, yeah, I can do that. I'll just go give a goat or a lamb. It's worth it. That's why God later told his people that he was sick and tired of his sacrifices. And that was our scripture reading for this morning. Turn again to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, beginning in verse 11. And God is speaking to his people who faithfully were doing the sacrifices. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God doesn't mincing words here, is he? He hates the sacrifices. Why? Why? It appears that God would rather people not worship at all than to make a pretense of worship while living unholy lives. They were being hypocritical. They would live this way one day, come to the temple and pretend everything's all right. God would rather people not worship at all than make a pretense of worship while living unholy 
lives. That brings me up short. I mean, would you describe your life as holy? You know, pretty good maybe, but holy? Deeply ingrained in all of the services was a sense of God's holiness. Israel was used to the paganism of Egypt. They, they, they had not been exposed to true holiness, and they had to learn how to approach God in utter humility, something that we still struggle with. How to approach God. If we do not intentionally focus on the holiness of God, the spiritual tends to become the common. Pretty soon we can walk into God's house and make a racket, Turn it into a market and think nothing of it. That's why everything connected with the ceremonies had to be done with care. That's why God gave such details and he was so strict. Only a perfect animal was allowed to be sacrificed. Only the best of what you owned could be given as an offering. Every little detail had to be followed precisely. Even the wood of the altar couldn't be thrown on haphazardly. It had to be arranged on the altar. One thing was clear. Respect for the holiness of God required planning and care to be put into the worship service. And this is why in Leviticus, God laid out some of the fundamental principles for worshiping him. Even though the the sacrificial ceremonies are no longer required for worship, worship itself is still extremely important. It's one of the primary themes of the Bible. If you read through, you will see the theme of worship show up over and over again. And in Leviticus, we find some important principles for worship. Among them, preparation, getting ready to meet with God. Also a sense of the holiness of God and the reverence that he and his house deserve. Also obedience to his laws as a sign of our love for him. And careful planning in coming to worship him. When I read about the worship services that the Jews conducted, I am amazed and impressed with how much time and effort they, both personally and as a group, put into preparing to meet with God. It was not uncommon for God to tell the people to wash their clothes and wash themselves and to clean up the camp and to prepare their food because they were going to meet with God. Get ready. Is God any less holy today than he was back then? Should we take any less care than ancient Israel did in preparing to meet God in his holy temple on his holy day? If anything, we should have a greater understanding by now of God's holiness and prepare even more. Some of the greatest worship services recorded in the Bible were these beautifully choreographed events, including everything from music to meditation, preaching to prayer, silence to celebration. It was all there. 
As I consider how much work went into their meetings, I begin to understand how much more I need a sense of the holiness of God. This being whose word can create an entire solar system. This God whom no one has ever seen directly because even a glimpse of his glory is unbearable. Who has the power to give life. This being who gave me life and continues to give me life. Get close enough to this God and worship will not be a decision you make. (laughs) It will not be some sort of an intelligent head thing. Get close enough to this God and you will automatically fall on your face. No matter how much you may have understood about the holiness of God before. Our worship services are intended to praise and acknowledge the holiness of God. If we knew that God would be here next week in bodily form, sitting on the front row where we could see him. How would our worship service be different? Think about that. What would we do different to prepare? I can tell you, I'd I'd put a lot more work into my part. More time into the sermon preparation. More time into the children's story. I have a feeling we would all prepare for that service like we never had before. The elders would put a lot of time into preparing the program, making sure the music was the best it could be. The readings and the prayer, even the offering appeal would be done well. And praise time, every one of us would have thought beforehand how we could compliment God, how we could praise him and thank him for his blessings. The deacons would be so coordinated that everything about the church would be operating perfectly to to enhance the worship experience. Everyone would come dressed in their finest. Families on their best behavior. We would invite our friends. We would sing with enthusiasm and pray with fervency. We would realize that God is listening. No one would be thinking about how upset they were with somebody else in the congregation. Because we would be thinking about that incredible being on the front row. No one's eyes would be on the clock. Because our eyes would be on someone Much more interesting than a clock. I bet during our service we wouldn't spend so much time talking about God. Trying to figure him out. As we would spend talking to God. And praising him for his goodness to us. We wouldn't be thinking whether or not we were getting anything out of the service. Because we would be wondering whether he was getting anything out of it. Can you imagine God sitting in the front row while I preach about what he thinks? Or about what he's going to do? I'd be embarrassed. I'd be looking at him saying, is is that right? Is that really true? I'd be reluctant to preach that kind of a sermon directly in front of God. I think instead my sermon that day would be filled with stories about the incredible things that God has done. Especially that selfless sacrifice that he made on Calvary for me. And everyone would nod and would shout in agreement, Amen. Because we want to show God how grateful we are for what he's done for us. That, my friends, is worship. 
That is worship. Bible study alone, that's not worship. An atheist can study the Bible. Prayer alone, that's not worship. The unconverted can pray. Giving offerings alone, that's not worship. Because every one of us are guilty of having given our offerings without any thought to God. No. Worship is reflecting on and speaking about and recounting the greatness of our God. That's worship. Now, I understand that we need to teach people about God. And I understand that church is a great place to do that. So I'm not discouraging that. But I am convinced that we should never come to church without intending to worship. And that we should never leave church without somewhere, somehow, spending time worshiping, recounting and reflecting on God's goodness to us, his mighty acts on our behalf. Every time that we leave church service without having communicated to our God our wonder and our awe and our reverence and our gratitude and our praise for what he has done for us, then God leaves that service having gotten nothing out of it. Even though we will receive great things in true worship. Our worship services are not supposed to be about something that we receive ourselves. We will, but that's not the point. We truly worship only when we focus on giving to God. That's when we worship. And every single week, he is here to receive our worship and our adoration and our praise. We were created to worship. And we do that by remembering what God has done for us and by telling each other about it and by paying attention, by looking for it during the week so that we can share it when we come together. That is what worship is all about. And so that's one more thing that the book of Leviticus teaches us. And there's much more packed into this, this, this book of the Bible. As you read of the way that God worked with his people in ancient days, keep your eyes and your mind open for how it applies to you today. Because God has saved this book for us for a reason. To help us better understand him. Your study of this book, I promise you, can be richly rewarding. Look for it as you go through. Amen. Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. 
Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus. This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.